We are continuing in our series uh, about the storm. Okay, so we've talked about a church for the storm, leadership in the storm, preaching in the storm, all kinds of things. Uh, and we're going to wrap up February, uh, the next couple of weeks, February, uh, with this series as well. Today, we are going to talk about a people for the storm. And, and this, is a, this is important for us at a number of different levels. One is, um, and all of us are wired differently. I, I can speak for myself. I am wired to think uh, kind of organizationally, right? Like I think I wake up thinking about the people and what the church is doing. Okay. Or sorry, I said the people, I meant the future. I don't think about the people. And, you know, that's, we're, it's just the, it's just the, uh, what, 11 of us here, like we, we're friends. Uh, I don't wake up thinking about people. I really don't. I know. And I apologize for that. But I wake up thinking about the future and I'm thinking about the organization. Like, what are we doing structure and people and staff and, you know, like all of those kinds of things. That's what I think about. But the reality is we exist for the people. The church exists for the people. The people don't exist for the church. And so especially in a moment like this where everything's changing, everything's moving, and, and most of the movement is kind of anti-Christian, uh, even when it's not antagonistically Christian, it's anti-Christian in its ideas and concepts and values and purposes. In the moment like this where everything's shifting, it's shifting really quickly and it's shifting away from us, our people need us more than ever. Okay, so we have to adjust our minds. Those of us who don't just think about people and those of you who do, God bless you. I would love to hire you someday to help me think about people. But for those of us who don't, we have to remember what our people need in a moment like this. So today's lesson is about a people for the storm, what our people need in order to be able to navigate the storm. Okay, so it's four things. Um, the first one's going to be a little bit of a repeat uh, of, of something we've talked about in the past, but I want to shift the frame just a little bit. Okay, and, and just a reminder as we get into it, put your questions in the Q&A. This whole thing is so much better when there's questions at the end and there's some interaction and it's not just me on the fire hose the whole time. Okay, so put your questions in the Q&A, put any snarky comments you have in the chat so we can all laugh at them. Okay. All right. First, the first thing that your people need, they need a defense. Okay. They need a defense. And I, I've, I've struggled a little bit to like wordsmith this a little bit because a defense, you know, obviously puts the frames, the whole thing in kind of a defensive posture. And that's not really the posture that I want us to take, nor the posture that I want our people to take. Okay. But we have to be able to think well. Okay, so what, what they need is a, a defense, a worldview, an argument, a something. They need to be prepared intellectually for what's to come. Okay, and so this goes back to the way we've talked about discipleship as evangelship, right? That all of our evangelism and discipleship needs to have apologetics at its core, okay, at the center of it, right? So as we think about discipleship, I want us to think about it in a couple of different ways. One is proactive discipleship, and the other is reactive discipleship. And we've talked about this in previous pastor guides over the last couple of years, but it's the way I think about discipleship, proactive and reactive. Now, I grew up a Christian. I grew up in church, had a really positive experience with church and, you know, all of it. Okay, I don't have a story. Good stories. And yet... 
my discipleship experience was, I would call it kind of Swiss cheese, right? Big holes, nothing really on purpose, kind of random, reactive to need. I, I was never put, uh, no one ever sat me down and said, well, Justin, you're a Christian now. Let's start at the beginning and teach you what it means to be Christian. I mean, genuinely, the closest I got to that was seminary, right? Which, you know, I, I studied theology with Wayne Grudem, and we started at the beginning of the book, and we ended at the end of the book, and that was the most proactive discipleship I ever experienced, but it wasn't until I was paying a lot of money for it in seminary, okay? So most of my discipleship was reactive. I had some need, some experience, some loss, some, some thing, some intellectual crisis, right? That then was responded to with discipleship. So I have a sin issue, right? I'm in high school and I'm dealing with lust for the first time, right? Well, junior high, dealing with lust for the first time. And, and so my youth pastor's going, okay, we got to talk about lust. We got we to figure out how to, how to manage this or whatever. Like uh, we have, uh, you know, some, something happens where I've got a, some existential crisis, some intellectual question that causes me to doubt some aspect of the, you know, the truthfulness of scripture or whatever it is, right? The resurrection. Okay. There's a reaction to that and go, okay, well, let's talk about arguments for the truthfulness of the scripture, the right reliability of the translations. Let's address the resurrection. Let's read this book and do it. And that's, that's not bad, right? We have to do reactive discipleship, but if reactive discipleship is the only discipleship we do, there's a couple problems with it. One, it's always a step behind right? Reaction by definition is always a step behind. Some, some outside stimulus happens, some loss, some question, some brokenness, and then discipleship is responding to it. It's kind of the way Christian culture mimics regular culture. Nor, you know, secular culture is out in front creating and, and innovating, and then Christian culture is kind of trailing behind Christianizing all of those things. It's all bad, right? It's why Christian music is so bad, generally, unless Lecrae's on this call, and other, in, in which case, never mind. Uh, but the, the idea is reactive discipleship is always a There are things that I don't have to wrestle with because that moment never occurred to me. Okay. That thing never occurred to me. Uh, that problem never happened. That question was never introduced into my life. And so there are, there are aspects of discipleship that I've never had to react to. Okay. So then, then it becomes pockmarked. The, uh, the, the answer is, that we need to pair reactive discipleship with proactive discipleship. And this is not a new idea. I'm not making anything up here, right? The vast majority of church history has had proactive discipleship at its core. It's called catechism. And for the first, I don't know, 1900 years of church history, catechism was a massive part of the church, right? It's not just a Catholic thing. It's an everybody thing, okay? So this is, I mean, Charles Spurgeon catechized and David Martin Lloyd-Jones catechized. This catechism has been a huge part of the Christian tradition forever. Where a new convert or someone who's interested in the church would begin their process by walking through a systematic proactive 
explanation of the faith. And it usually took years, right? So I, I was inspired by this a few years ago and set out to write a kind of modern catechism or what I thought of as a missional catechism, okay? So it's a combination of what are the core doctrines of the church and how do we talk about them in a way that recognizes that apologetics has to be at the center of our discipleship? So it's a missional catechism. It's catechism written. So, you know, the, the first part is the gospel. We're framing up the gospel in a way that is, you know, true to the scriptures, obviously, but also responsive to the questions and challenges of the world. Okay. And so by the time you're done, you've got you know, it's, it's a, it's eight modules and six lessons. So eight times six is I'm pretty sure 48, uh, 48 lessons, uh, that are the basics of the faith theologically, ethically, and in terms of spiritual disciplines. Okay. And so there, that's not comprehensive. It doesn't address everything, but it is a framework that is proactive discipleship to go, Hey, you need to know these basics before you go out into the world. This is not only not a new idea in Christianity, it's not a new idea in anything, right? In, in fact, in, in churches that don't do proactive discipleship might be the only space in the world that would do such a thing, right? That we would never um, have somebody who wants to be an electrician and go, okay, just go start playing with electricity. And as you have problems, come back and then I will help you solve those problems, right? No, because we'd have a string of dead electricians and that would be a real bummer, right? We put them through school, we train them, and then they go out into the field with a basic knowledge along with you know their apprentice to a master electrician. They go out with the basic knowledge and then they, they are able to troubleshoot and problem solve and come back and go, hey, I faced this problem that wasn't part of the curriculum. How do I solve it? But they have the basic tools to know like, hey, don't touch the hot wire, right? Like, or die, okay? What we're doing is going, you want to be a Christian? Great, let's baptize you. Go into the world and let us know if you have questions, right? Or we do a three-week baptism class. Well, there's just no way on that kind of timeline we can prepare people for what they need, and especially not in an ever-changing, more secularizing, more anti-Christian environment. So our people need a defense. They need proactive and reactive discipleship. They need catechism and apologetics, and we've got to figure out how to prepare our people for that, okay? So that's number one. Number two, not only do they need a defense, they need a plan. They need a plan. And here's what I mean by that. Um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that social media is destroying our world and our people. Okay. Overstatement? I don't think so. In fact, I am more convinced of that every single day. Every day that I am on Twitter, I am more convinced that this is the worst thing to happen to the world uh, in a very long time. Okay. So the question is, it's not just social media, it's not just Twitter, though I think that's among the worst, um, but how are our people going to navigate a, a massive media overload and digital overload, overload? How are they going to navigate the world? How are they going to kind of curate their minds and hearts in the world? How, what will they watch? What will they read? What will they listen to? And, and why? 
Like what's the filter that they're going to use to discern, hey, these are good ideas. These are bad ideas. Okay. So many of our people in the last two years have been hijacked by the left and by the right in ways that are insane and the result of media, propaganda, media influence, social media influence, some relational influence, but mostly they've chosen to listen to sources that are unreliable, unhelpful, and unchristian, okay? So how do we help our people not just have a defense for what they know, but also a plan for how to navigate the world? What is the filter that they're going to use to kind of filter in what, what influences am I going to to allow in my life, okay? We've just never lived in a world that is this anti-Christian, at least not in the West, not in the modern West. We've never lived in a world that's this anti-Christian and the, the, that anti-Christian message is so pervasive and persuasive. Okay. It's just never happened. And our people are ill-equipped for it, right? Like there's a ton of writing out there about how the human mind is just unprepared and ill-equipped for the massive amounts of inputs that we are receiving. And so I think some of the insanity that we're seeing out there right now is the result of like brains short-circuiting and going like, wait, is that real? What's real? Is that true? What's true? How do I know what's true? And then they grab onto some idea or some tribe, or whatever, and they just run down a crazy path until they find themselves on the foot of the Capitol with guns and stuff. Like it's insane, right? So we've got to equip our people with a plan for how to navigate, okay? So one, a defense. Do a plan. Three, courage. I think courage might be the virtue of our day. Courage is the virtue of, of this whole season, okay? Everything's changing, and that is scary. We have to give our people the courage to walk faithfully in the world, because when it comes right down to it, they can know the right answers. They can be well discipled. They can have a plan for what you know inputs are going to emerge in their life. But there is inevitably going to come a moment, a series of moments, where they have to make a choice. Will I stand or will I fall? We have to give their people that courage. They're going to be facing very real obstacles, ideological obstacles, where it's just, I mean, there is just no upside in our world today. In, in most major cities, and you may live in a little pocket that's holding on for dear life, and I'm, I'm you know, enjoy it. Uh, but there is just no space in our world today where being, you know, historically conservative on sexuality and gender is okay. It's just not, just doesn't exist anymore. You can't admit it without expecting backlash. Okay. And so what are our people going to do, right? Like literally probably the only people that are incentivized to toe the line are pastors. That's it. But everybody else, there's nothing about their world that incentivizes them toeing the line on gender and sexuality, right? Just there's nothing. So we have to give them the courage to be able to stand. We have to think about how do we cultivate courage in our people? How do we, the way we would cultivate holiness, or we would cult, cultivate prayerfulness, or we would cultivate any virtue. How do we cultivate courage in our people's lives? And I, I've got one, one thing I want us to, I want this, you know, pastor guy to be kind of a community where we're 
talking about this stuff and bouncing ideas off each other. So use the Q&A in the comment section on these live calls, but also the Facebook page. Like I'm on there. If so, if you guys have ideas or thoughts, you'll notice like I'm commenting more and more and more. I, you know, man, the more I can be on Facebook, the better guys. So, you know, make me go there. But here, here's an idea. And I thought of this this week because I'm preaching about divorce on Sunday. We have to preach about hard topics. And in those moments of preaching about it, that's a great opportunity for us to do discipleship, to do apologetics, to frame up an issue like divorce in a way that goes, hey, here's why Christians are against divorce. Okay. And it's not that like, oh, divorce is bad. Don't do divorce. That's not, that's a, that's a massively reductionistic way to think about any vice or virtue, but especially this one, right? Why would God care? Why would, why would the Bible say that God hates divorce? Why would that be the case? Well, let's, let's start, right? We're doing Matthew chapter 20. This is where the passage comes from. And Jesus starts by going, Hey, from the beginning, God created man and woman. Okay. So there's a, there's a framework, a creation framework about what we are, who we are and what we're for and what marriage is for. Okay. Um, that I think we have to give people. So that's the, that's the apologetic sense. But I also think we have to call people to courage in those moments, right? We have to call people to stand for and to, you know, to really like rally the troops in that moment when we're talking about these difficult issues to go, hey, I know what you're going to face. Here's, here's an idea. Here's some, here's a defense. Okay. Here's a plan for how I might go about talking about this and how I might go about, you know, listening to certain inputs in, in my life, but then also like, let's go stand up when, when push comes to shove, will you fall? I mean, I think we have to talk really directly to our people and especially our men to say, let's be courageous. Will you stand in this moment, stand humbly, graciously, not arrogantly, not angrily, but stand firm in, in, in the faith. And I think we need to call our people to that. So folks need a defense. They need a plan. They need courage. And lastly, they need support. Okay. Community is going to be uh, increasingly critical in, in this uh, stage. We have to have community. And I think about community in terms of the idea of redundancy. So if you've ever worked in IT or any kind of systems work, we're working with a company right now uh, on the context staffing side, that's an IT management company. And, um, and we talk about the idea of redundancy, right? Redundancy in systems. So that if one system falls, there are redundant systems that can do the same work that will back up that failed system, okay? And community in this context is a lot like a redundant system, okay? So you've got this individual who goes out in the world and the, the system's working against them, that all of the, you know, the pressure is against them and they fail. So they go back to the community, which builds them up, holds them up, because the culture out there is not going to surround them in a supportive way. So they need community that can kind of uh, motivate and support and encourage that, that redundant idea. Okay, And so say the same things over and over, do the same things over and over. And I think that's really, really important. So we have to create community for our people. And I think we've all been doing that to one degree or another, but I think things like the Benedict Option, or I was just reading a book, um, this book actually, it's right here, Building the Benedict Option by Leah Labresco, which is really, really good. And uh, Rod Dreher does the forward. I'm a, I'm a fan of that. Um, 
we have to think about like, what are our communities trying to accomplish? And yes, they can do accountability for sin. And yes, they can do kind of relational support and stickiness to the church, but they also need to be a place where people can come and go, okay, tell me again, why we're fighting this battle. Tell me again, why this is true. Tell because everything out there is telling me it's wrong. So tell me why it's true. And, and it creates that kind of system redundancy. And I think that's really important, but said not just for community. I also think um, we need to think about, be thinking about how we will support people financially in moments of job loss. Okay, so more and more and more people's jobs are on the line. If they were ever upfront and honest about what they believed about the world, their jobs might be in jeopardy. Okay, and so I've told you about the, um, the, the guy we have here at our church who works for Disney, who didn't want his picture on our Instagram because he just wasn't ready for that. Go, no problem. That's okay. Let's talk about that though. Um, but he recognizes the reality of like he works with Marvel. Uh, that's a high stakes job. It's a really competitive job. Something like, oh, you're part of this church could really work against his career. So he's just really aware of that. So we've got to be able to, to call people to courage while at the same time creating a community that could support them if their courage results in the loss of a job. Okay. I know this might seem tangential, but I think of it very similarly to the way we treat people in the LGBT community. If we are going to call same-sex attracted people to singleness and to you know, a, a life of celibacy, then with that call, we also have to create a scenario where they are supported and they aren't alone, that they have family, even if they are called to celibacy. I don't think you can do one without the other, or it is at least cruel to do one without the other. Okay. So the same way we would say, Hey, we, you know, I know it's hard, but we, we the scriptures call us to celibacy, uh, that, but we are going to be your family. Okay. So move in with us or be at our house for dinner every night or whatever, like create community for them. I think we got to do the same thing. We're going to call our people to courage and to faithfulness. Then we also need to kind of back that up and go, all right, how are we as a church going to create a safety net for people so that if they are courageous and they do lose a job or they get wages docked or whatever it is, like we, we can be there for them. Okay. So I think that that financial support is big. Um, and then, you know, one solution to this is there's a lot of people that, you know, are encouraging and, and even strategically thinking about how can our Christian businessmen um, create more businesses to be able to hire more people, right? So, you know, in every major city, there is a Chinatown. And my son, we were driving through Chinatown here in LA. And my son goes, why, like, why does that exist? There's a Koreatown, a Chinatown, Japantown. Why is that? And I explained to him, well, when, when those people immigrated to the United States, they kind of huddled together, created businesses to create a little ecosystem, create a, uh, you know, a, a an ecosystem for them to be able to survive. So they provided for one another when there was you know, difficulty and oppression outside of that little ecosystem. And so they helped each other. And I think more and more, we have to think similarly, right? So we have to start businesses and build businesses to be able to hire Christians, um, you know, not just lazy Christians who couldn't hack it in the real world, but folks who were courageous and stood up for their faith. And as a result, lost wages, lost their jobs, and now need a place to land and we can be that support. So 
zooming out, I just think we need to think way more about ecosystem, the larger ecosystem of what are we doing? How are we calling people to be Christian? And then how are we supporting them in their Christian faith, right? Rather than just saying, well, I, I just want to build my church. I just want to build my pulpit. I just want to build my platform. I just want to build this thing, even in the best sense of it, right? Like a lot of us got into ministry specifically because we wanted to preach and teach and care for people. And, and we weren't, we didn't get into ministry, you know, to build an ecosystem or to build a, you know, like a, this holistic vision for community development and all this stuff. I totally get that. And a lot of you guys just go, man, just kind of just like study the scriptures for 15 hours and then go preach and then love people. Yes, you can, but to a diminishing crowd. And, and, and I think you will be less and less and less helpful to your people um, if, if that's what, if that's what they're doing. So, um, I, I think we do have to think bigger. We do have to think in the larger ecosystem. Okay. So let's, uh, look at some of these, um, some of these questions. We have three questions here. I want to scroll through the, the comments, uh, just a little bit. George said, I would say the incentive to raise children who know who they are would be a strong incentive. That's absolutely true, George. We've got to think uh, multi-generationally as well. Uh, okay, questions. Start at the top. Keith, do you have apologetics resources that you recommend? Younger folks don't seem to connect well to classic apologetics, William Wayne Craig, et cetera. Postmodern thought has made this method difficult suggestions. Yes, definitely suggestions. So for your, you know, there, there's different kinds of people. And I, and I always try to kind of have conversations with someone to go, what, which resource is going to fit best for this person? Okay, so a couple of things. Keller's reason for God for all your smart people. If you got a smart person, especially kind of an old, older, high culture person, Reason for God is, is really, really good. Um, making sense of God, Keller's uh, kind of follow-up to that, is also good, but it's different. It's more philosophical. So if you've got someone who can kind of traffic in the philosophical, I think that can be really, really valuable. Um, what my experience has been, and again, I'm talking to pastors for the most part here, so I'll, I'll be a little more honest. What I've experienced is most of the people that need apologetics have not been won by sound argument as much as they have been won by peer pressure and aesthetics, okay? So that, that's a little cynical maybe, but when you start asking people questions who are atheists or agnostic or questioning their faith or deconstructing or whatever, you just go start to ask them questions, uh, they fall apart pretty quickly in general. Okay, some don't. So I would recommend those two. I would also rec recommend Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. She's fantastic. Uh, we had her out uh, when we were in Seattle for an event, and she was really, really good. Um, and, and she walks through more some, some uh, more kind of cultural argumentation around or, or some of the, the, the cultural arguments against Christianity. And she uh, addresses those in a way that's really winsome, very statistical um, and uh, less, less philosophical, more concrete, I would say. And then uh, The Problem with God by Mark Clark is, in, is good. Searching for Enough by Tyler Staten, Staten is good. Um, there are a lot of others that I would give, um, but those are kind of the big ones um, that I would start with, Keith. Okay, Jason, 
Uh, all right, Jason Bellar, what are some practical ways we can help our people out with a plan for curating and navigating news information, et cetera? Okay, first, write a plan for yourself, okay? Figure out what, what, is, what are best practices around this. Have a plan for you, um, run that plan, work that plan for a while, work out the kinks, get good at it, because you've got to be able to speak from a place of authenticity and authority. And in our world, authenticity and authority means honesty and firsthand experience, okay? So I would first do that. Talk, like work a plan for yourself, uh, Cody just said Mama Bear Apologetics is accessible and strong. Uh, agreed. Uh, it's aimed at women. Obviously, it doesn't need to be, but it but it is. Uh, and that, that that one's good, too. So uh, Alona can pop that on there. Mama Bear Apologetics. It's such a great title. Uh, so I would start there, Jason. Make a plan for yourself. Work that plan so that you can speak from first-person experience. Then, I mean, I'm a preacher, so my answer is always preaching. Right. Uh, but I, I but I would absolutely preach this stuff consistently and do a series on how to navigate social media and and, you know, use the wisdom of Proverbs, use the wisdom uh, of the scriptures to, you know, get after like the ideas and the values and the principles and then get down into making a plan. And, and here's how I would think through it. Here's what I've done. Here's what worked and here's what didn't work. So I would absolutely make that a part of your preaching, you know, rotation and then um, make it part of your discipleship stuff, your apologetics as well, or, or your, uh, your catechism. Um, you know, how to navigate the world in media is definitely a part of our catechism. And, uh, and I would recommend it be a part of yours as well. I just think there, there may not be anything more influential on our people than digital media. I mean, is that even an exaggeration? Is, uh, that feels like an obvious statement between Instagram and Twitter, various news sites and Netflix, you know, Disney plus, right? I, I was watching, uh, I had this little, my four-year-old and he was, he wanted to do a workout. They do these kid workouts and it's on whatever, go something called Go Noodle. So if you guys have young kids, you might know Go Noodle. So I pull up Go, the Go Noodle app on our Apple TV and there was a whole section uh, where this guy was talking about um, basically identity on Go Noodle for four-year-olds. And I, and I thought, yeah, it's just, it's everywhere. This is just, this is just what it is now. And so um, we got to be really supportive to our people for that. Okay. Hopefully that's helpful, Jason. Uh, lastly, Stephen Bednar, you mentioned something like an eight module, six lesson catechism. Are there any programs available that you'd recommend or point toward to use as a good model starting point for sort of apologetic catechism you're referencing? Honestly, Stephen, uh, I mean, it's going to take me a little more time, but I am hoping to make the catechism I wrote uh, accessible uh, because not that it will be ultimately the be all end all uh, of things, but I think it's a valuable contribution to this idea. I actually don't know anything else because I'm not a writer. I'm barely a talker. And, and so there, there should be people who are really thinking well about this stuff and, and writing well about it, who are putting this stuff out. And I don't see it. I mean, I take my kids through the New City Catechism, but that's not this. Um, so I don't know of anything, to be totally honest. That is an A to Z. I mean, we, we do gospel scripture, creation, fall, I mean, all the way through in eight kind of big bucket modules 
Um, and then, you know, it's uh, each module is six lessons, four theological lessons, one ethics. So what's the ethical idea that flows naturally out of this theological concept? And then a spiritual discipline that, that goes along with it. So for instance, we are, we just finished the gospel module here at All Souls. It's four lessons on what is the gospel. It is one lesson on loving your neighbor. That's the ethics. That's, you know, so that flows out of it, right? So God, Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. Second is love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that flows out of the gospel. And then the, um, the spiritual discipline that we talked about was, oh, shoot, now I'm forgetting. We just, I just taught on it two weeks ago. Um, I don't remember. It was. Christians, because we believe there is such a thing as the truth. And so we need to be people of the truth. Um, and then the, the spiritual discipline will be how to read your Bible. Okay. So that walks through all A to Z. We end with eschatology and uh, the last spiritual discipline is prepping for the apocalypse. I think if I remember correctly. So uh, I, I don't know of anything else. That's why I wrote it. I hope that there's something I don't know about. If anybody knows something else, uh, please let me know. Um, and when we're done writing it uh, and editing and all that, I do plan, I don't know if we'll publish it. I don't know if it's publishable, but it, uh, but I'll definitely make it available, um, especially to you pastor guy guys um, when it, when it is. Okay. Well, it's 1042. That's enough of my voice for sure. For one day, far too much. Uh, in fact, uh, guys, uh, I care about you, care about your churches, care about your people. And, and it's a wild world out there and we need to be preparing our people for it. So let's give them a defense. Let's give them a plan. Let's give them courage and, and the support that they need to be able to navigate the world. So we'll, we'll learn how to do that together. Until then, we'll see you guys next week where we will look at the next installment and go on the Pastor Guide website. Click the link in the chat. Go on there, pastorguide.com slash membership dash overview buy the new product, 19 bucks a month. There's, I mean, that's like what? One coffee a month at Starbucks these days. Uh, go get it. We get these calls, all the new video curriculum, all the stuff we've got coming up. And if you want more information about cohorts or uh, about uh, about one-on-one -on -one coaching through the Pastor Guide curriculum, email me, justin at contextstaffing.com or uh, click the link in one of those previous emails. And we'll keep talking about it because we think this stuff is super important. So, all right, guys, have a great week and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.